You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our next episode of Simulcast. Uh, This is the next in our series with Advances in Simulation Journal. And today we're bringing you an article that I think is going to change your simulation practice, both in the scenarios you design as well as the debriefing you do. So before I introduce the article, I'm going to introduce our guests who are two of the authors on this paper. And the first of those is Peter Diekman, who's from Denmark. He's a senior researcher at the Copenhagen Academy for Medical Education and Simulation. He's a work and organisational psychologist and very interested in patient safety and the role simulation plays in that. Welcome, Peter. And my next guest is someone who I have admired from afar but never met, and that is Mary Patterson. She's a paediatric emergency physician from the Children's National Medical Centre in Washington, D.C., and uh, she's written a lot about insight simulation, done a lot of work in that area, but more relevant today, very interested in patient safety, resilience engineering, and safety too, which will come out as we discuss the paper. Welcome, Mary. So the paper we're going to talk about today has just come out in Advances in Simulation, and the title of the paper is Variation and Adaptation, Learning from Success in Patient Safety-Orientated Simulation Training. And as I said, I think it's going to change your practice because it really does turn on its head our ideas about how we want people to improve and what we think they can learn from the simulation that we do. Okay, so I might start with you, Peter, and just tell us, what is this thing, learning from success? Well, it, it kind of sprang out from observing many simulation scenarios where people, you know, they have a challenge in the scenario and then they adapt to that challenge and kind of turn the challenge into a success. They kind of navigate through a difficult situation. And what I found really interesting that in most of the debriefings, people are discussing in in a lot of details how could you prevent the, the, the challenge from happening in the first place, which makes a lot of sense. But I think it would also make a lot of sense to discuss in more detail how did you turn that into a success. So the the example we give in the paper is this uh, the broken laryngoscope, or where the light is broken, or the battery is empty, actually. Um, and, you know, they recognize that during the scenario. And all of the discussion is, yes, you should have checked the laryngoscope in the beginning. That's true. But, you know, how did they actually discover that? That is easy to see that, it's, it's, that, that it does not work. But how did they then organize in the team that they actually, you know, uh, organized a new laryngoscope in an unfamiliar environment and so on. And I think this second perspective is very in- a very interesting supplement to also discuss in a debriefing. Uh, yeah, I think that's fascinating. And so what you're saying is a lot of what we do in practice is dealing with things that go wrong. And so we need to be really good at that. So the great success of dealing with a problem rather than trying to prevent it is about learning from success. Uh, Mary, is that your sort of conceptualization of this idea? How would you add to that? Yes. So I think that one of the reasons um, that I came to this was really from my experience uh, separately from simulation in the resilience engineering and safety two world. And uh, the safety two world thinks about uh, safety rather than looking or counting the number of errors. It it approaches it from the idea of 
how many uh, how things go right or how things go normally. And and the reality is that uh, for most healthcare organizations, a really a very small fraction of things go wrong. So perhaps ten percent, but ninety percent of the time things go right. Yet, um, as as I've discussed this with my colleagues in uh, safety two and resilience engineering, we've we've struggled with how to incorporate that into simulation because so many of us um, that have grown up in simulation or or have experience in simulation have been trained or, or have an approach or a perspective that focuses on uh, improving or, or finding out or rooting out the errors and mistakes. And so this is, an, uh, I think, a, a, an ideal way to actually integrate the safety to and resilience engineering world with simulation. It, it's, it's learning from what is successful, what happens most of the time, and, and how do we actually achieve su- success in, in terms of what, what are the adaptations that the teams and the individuals use um, to to create success or create normal conditions, normal outcomes, uh, despite uh, challenges, unexpected challenges that come up in in the care of the patient. Yes, and you've used a few terms there that may or may not be familiar to our listeners about safety too mm-hmm. and resilience, uh, engineering, etc. One, I thought, have you got some references for people on that? And secondly. As I understand it, that's about saying that in our healthcare worlds of complexity, there are trade-offs and we have to be good at those rather than pretending we can avoid all of them. Is that right, Mary? Yes. So I think, um, and I'm not sure if I'll get these in exactly the correct order, but um, one of the tenets or concepts associated with safety too and resilience engineering is that that we are always dealing uh, with conflicting goals and we make trade-offs. Now, sometimes we make those trade-offs unconsciously. And I think that oftentimes healthcare workers are uh, particularly adept at adapting and, and making these trade-offs because they've, they've internalized those. So they don't, if, if one would ask them, for example, what, what trade-offs did they make or ask them how they adapted to a particular situation, they may not be able to answer that question without um, more probing or, uh, identifying particular observations where that was was observed or noticed. So um, so part of safety two and resilience engineering is actually recognizing the constraints and the conflicting goals that exist for within systems and um, are imposed on systems and individuals and teams and making those visible uh, in terms of understanding the, the trade-offs that occur in the care of patient and how we adapt. In terms of references, um, there's there are a number of them that are um, quite good. I I would say that the first paper that anybody would want to read or or potentially should read is um, the paper that was written by Eric Hochnagel, Jeffrey Rothwaite, and Robert Weirs. Um, It's a white paper and it's available uh, open access on the internet, but it's a very good introduction to the concepts of safety one, safety two, and resilience engineering. Yeah, and we'll put the link uh, to that uh, on the website accompanying this podcast. Before we get too much into the practical, I might continue on with some of the principles behind this. And Peter, you've used some words in some of the discussions we've had before the podcast about exnovation, and they're in the article and talking about the starting point in the mundane. Did you want to tell us a little bit more about some of these principles that underpin learning from success? Sure, absolutely. So um, I think a lot of time, again, in a debriefing, there's a little bit this expectation you have to have something that is outstanding. 
the the big mistakes or the great ideas and then you kind of look at this and then you try to bring in new concepts uh, call it crisis resource management call it human factors and so on and i think all all of this makes sense you know that we look at the extreme cases that we try to bring in new concepts the idea of exnovation is that you can actually bring in new ideas by looking at existing practice old existing ideas with new eyes trying to draw new connections um, see it from a different angle and and uh, Jessica Meesman from the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands she has worked a lot with exnovation with the exnovation idea in actual uh, pediatric intensive care units in Maastricht where they did video recordings and this physical change of perspective from the video recording and the new perspective that it enables on actual practice helped people see new angles on their practice. And they were not looking at, you know, uh, difficult situations. They were looking at very mundane situations, everyday situations that are done by many and or frequently. One of the examples is, you know, putting on a sterile glove and they recorded the variety of how people do this. There is a, a procedure written about this, how you should actually do this, but the procedure does not tell you where you should do this. And no wonder, you know, people do this on messy desks, they do it on bloody tables on, and, you know, very different things. And by looking at their practice and the variety of their practice, um, they actually got very many new ideas that were reaching far beyond just putting on sterile gloves. And we thought, you know, by by using the video recordings that we have in many simulation centers available, but also even if you don't have a video and you just just sit together in the debriefing and discuss things in the new light, or or by by trying to look at this at your existing practice with a new angle you can learn a lot and making explicit what what you guys as clinicians are so good in doing uh, implicitly you know like mary so nicely said a lot of the work that is done most of the work that is done is actually good performance but the principles how you generate good performance are not necessarily so clear and the idea of exnovation is to kind of make this visible, bring new insights out from the existing. So this kind of turns some of, as you say, turns some of our initial thinking on its head. And I think the other thing you're saying is that this is really one of the essences of expertise, uh, what we might think of as workarounds, but you're saying, actually, no, these are just successful strategies that make us deal with complexity and uh, variation. So when people come to us and say, we want to run this big airway emergency, we say, well, why don't we instead just simulate a bit of every day and have a talk about that? And we might find lots of uh, new outcomes that we hadn't realised. Mary, you've uh, also got a few interesting terms that you put in some of our initial discussions. Graceful extensibility, what's that? So this is a term that actually comes from uh, David Woods, and, and, and this grows uh, somewhat out of Rasmussen's work as well. But when we think about systems and we think about 
the boundaries of performance of a system. There's the margin or uh, boundary of good performance. And then when one crosses that, there's a boundary where performance is more challenging and it's, it's likely not to be as safe. It's likely to be riskier. Um, and we, we talk about in uh, resilience engineering, we talk about when the limits of the system are exhausted, that we, we can, the system may experience uh, graceful degradation where the system substitutes or sacrifices non-essential tasks for essential tasks. So we talk about graceful degradation versus catastrophic failure uh, when the system has reached its uh, breaking point, if you will. What David suggests is this alternative term called graceful extensibility. So individuals, teams, systems possess some um, graceful extensibility, this ability to adapt in response to um, uh, some sort of disturbance or perturbation in the system. And, and this idea is, is obviously very attractive in healthcare because we would like to think that our systems, our teams have an ability to gracefully adapt, to extend uh, when, uh, when there is a need. So if we think about acute care, for example, in emergency medicine or critical care or the operating room, places where to have some ability to adapt uh, in times high demand and unexpected uh, occurrences, that that would be very attractive. And and so, how does one enhance or facilitate this ability, this graceful extensibility? Yeah. So I think uh, I can already hear some of our listeners going. That sounds like a lot of theory. But I'm going to suggest if we're going into thinking about simulation for patient safety over the next 10 or 20 years, this is some reading that all of us have to do. So we'll provide, as I said, a few more links to that. Plus there's the reference list in the paper, which I'd direct people to as well. So I guess we want to get tangible here. We've heard that um, this is a bit of a new way of looking at it. For me, just to give another practical example, this would be something like we have an esophageal intubation during the simulation, and instead of really focusing on uh, how to avoid that, we say, wow, but look at what the team did in terms of recognizing that, getting reset to make another attempt, maintaining oxygenation while they did that, uh, changing operators if that was the next strategy. This was the success of that scenario, and look at all the things we can learn from it. Have I got that right? Um, yeah, I, I think so, uh, in, in the sense that we're, we're focusing on how does the team adapt to something that was unexpected. So I think the expected piece would be that the patient would be intubated correctly on the first attempt. Um, and, and that alone could be a scenario as well. I mean, just that the patient is correctly intubated uh, without uh, any sort of mishap at all. Um, and, and, and actually debriefing on uh, what, what adaptation, what variation occurred, what, what sort of small uh, adaptations do people generally use in that situation to make, to result in normal performance. But safety too also says that we learn from all of our experiences. So in the case of um, there was an esophageal intubation and, and we know that that does occur, that's, that's unexpected, but how does the team or the system actually remedy that? How do they return to an, a normal condition, which would, you know, of course mean getting the um, endotracheal tube in the, in the correct location. So that could be an example rather than focusing on why did the um, esophageal intubation happen in the first place? What was the adaptation of the team? How was it recognized quickly? How did, um, how did the team uh, reorganize uh, in such a way relative to equipment and, and, uh, and the patient to maintain the patient's uh, physiologic 
parameters and and uh, return to normalcy, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we're not abandoning uh, the idea of <clears throat> lessening esophageal intubations, but we've got other learning opportunities that have obviously emerged mm-hmm. through the success of dealing with it. I would need to put in one more piece of theory because I think that's very important. It shows a little bit up in, in, in what Mary says, but I would just like to you know make that even more explicit. And that is this idea of the installation theory by Sadi Lalu. We talk about a lot with the adaptation here in the sense of the people, the individual, the team is adapting to the circumstances. What, what Sadi says is you know, we need to have also a look at the interplay with the circumstances, with the physical layer, with the material layer, you know, with the intubation equipment that you have. That makes it possible with some of the tools, to, as far as I and psychologists understand that, it's my, with some of the tools, it's uh, more difficult to do this misintubation or easier to see that you actually did it because you with the video uh capabilities for example you would see where you are so some of the equipment makes it easier or harder to do errors makes it easier or harder to discover that you have actually an error and the other layer in the installation besides the humans is this uh, social and organizational rules the procedures that you have do you dare to speak up if you have the suspicion that your colleague actually have misintubated or not? What is the procedure to bring in new equipment? Do you have a fiber optic intubation equipment ready? How much resources are invested in having safety critical material at hand at all times, for example? So this piece of, of you know looking at humans in the context is in my mind, so to say, that just a missing link here uh, that we also would need to consider. You're listening to Simulcast. So, Peter, I guess let's try and make this tangible for our listeners. They've heard this, they go, wow, that's a new way of thinking about it. I get it. Um, what do you think this means for everyday educators? How should they start thinking about their program design and individual scenario design? If I now turn to what does that all mean in practice, I think, yes, to think about scenarios that would happen very, very often, that are mundane, that many people do uh, often, as opposed to what you often see on websites, you know, experience the extreme cases, experience in our simulation, what you never want to experience, uh, experience in real life. That is something, you know, with similar words that you can read on many websites of simulation centers. Why not say, you know, do the procedures that you will do tomorrow five times, but see them in a new light and see them with new perspectives. It also would mean in my mind to systematically analyze the working conditions that people are work under even more closely and build what you find in practice into simulation scenarios. The difference that also Eric Holnagel makes between work as imagined and work as done. I think many of the scenarios that we design are on the level of work as imagined, as written in the book. I implement the treatment algorithm as written in the book. You as clinicians will, in in far the most cases, actually adapt the treatment algorithm to a patient. That is your expertise. 
you know, if we would systematically bring in the smaller or larger variation that you can have in, in adapting uh, or in implementing the algorithm, I think that would be a very an important other piece about the simulation scenarios. And for the debriefing, then, I think is also, you know, what probably many people are working with in, in the first place, the idea of analyzing frames behind actions, you know, Jenny Rudolph's work, for example, that, you know, we try to, to put more pieces into the puzzle. What is the frame about? What could you ask? How did you adapt the individuals? How did you adapt in your interplay with the material layer and with the social and organizational rules? One question I'm going to ask you, Peter, because it almost occurs to me that as clinicians writing scenarios, we're a little bit blind maybe to some of these pieces around our imagination about our work. Uh, maybe we're not the best people to be writing scenarios as a result. Maybe we just have lost that appreciation for all those intangibles in between. Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> Well, yes, I think to some extent that's right. I mean, I often ask, you know, if you ask clinicians, what is a good scenario? They give you the clinical condition that they want to simulate and not what makes it difficult to actually, you know, put that into practice. In, in, on the other hand, I could not design, you know, scenarios that are relevant. So in my mind, the golden way here is actually the collaboration between professions and and to see you know what do we actually want to show around this i think it's also a lot about sharpening our learning goals and really become clear about well, what is it actually that we want our people to learn here yes i think that's probably true and mary i might ask the same question of you but maybe slightly differently so how do you now design a scenario and debrief a scenario with a learning from success mindset i think one of the things that i uh, try to do and, and, and I try to have when I facilitate and have the learners do is to think about why did these things go well? Why were we able to successfully accomplish this particular scenario? I can give you an example. There were issues related to um, replacing tracheostomy tubes, uh, so the breathing tubes for patients. We knew that mostly in our hospital, nurses on particular units are, are very skilled at that. But um, with a few exceptions, the physicians, many of the physicians do not have that skill. And we actually wanted to um, have the team figure out how to address a child with a plugged tracheostomy who was not in a medical unit. The child was in uh, the cafeteria. And we ran the scenario a number of times. But one of the things that uh, we kept uh, seeing was that the um, nurse would recognize that the child had a plugged tracheostomy tube and the nurse, he or she, would um, be waiting for the physician, for example, to uh, give them an order um, to change the tracheostomy tube or for the physician to change it themselves. And and what we, we saw was that oftentimes, you know, for example, um, many of the physicians, so a neurologist or a um, a, a cardiologist didn't necessarily know how to uh, care for or how to troubleshoot a tracheostomy tube. And as we were debriefing those, and um, you know, we would say, well, what finally did allow you to get to that? And and the answer typically was the nurse had finally taken the initiative or had asked the physician, "Do you want me to change the tracheostomy tube?" And so a lot of the discussion was around the different skill sets and how do we understand each other's skill sets. Um, particularly for ad hoc teams, as well as um, recognizing that, you know, the individuals, um, that, that the skill sets may not 
be what each person thinks. So many of the nurses thought every physician knew how to manage a tracheostomy tube. Um, physicians, most physicians did not realize that the nurses were actually quite skilled at this. So um, they would get through this. They would typically finally get to the, the success. But as we talked about what allowed the success to happen, it was... Um, it, and we, we um, identified ways to more quickly understand each other's skill sets to help the patient more quickly. Yeah, so there's a lot in what you just said, and it sounds like this is applicable across all sorts of learning domains. The one you've described is a little bit about interprofessional interactions, and clearly some of them are about just teamwork principles in general, and some of them are about uh, some of the strategies and policies that we have as systems. So I guess... Um, just thinking about uh, bringing this discussion round full circle, uh, Peter, I might just come back to you and, and just tell us, is there anything we've missed in this? And, and what do you think are really the take-home messages for the folks listening? Well, I think to, to me it's also one, one way of, of potentially supporting the transfer of learning because I think if we analyse simulation scenarios with also this angle, and I, 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 Ralph specifically, Ralph Prague, one of the co-authors, specifically asked me, "Tell them it's not to replace, it's to supplement." And I would like to just say that again. You know, the learning from success, success, oh, I cannot say that success approach uh, is meant to really supplement also more traditional ways of uh, simulating rare uh, occasions and stuff. And looking how can you prevent errors? So the really to, to supplement uh, the idea. If we do that, um, I think also you know the the challenge that we see in many training situations that what people have shown even in the simulation is more tricky to apply in in the real practice. If we spend more time in simulation to help them to adapt to the to the different variations that they will meet, I think we will also support them in in the transfer. And I, I would like to bring an example here from basic life support training, where we train school teachers in doing basic life support, and we had like a training session and we had a testing session and we did uh, video recordings with them, um, and then they commented on their own video. So they kind of told us about their frames that they had here. And it was really, really interesting to see that one of the school teachers said, um, in the test situation, I rang for a helper, but different from the, from the training situation, there was actually physically a person moving over to me. And that was so confusing to me, but I didn't know what to do with this person now. So, you know, certainly a helper would move over to you physically if you call, call for help, but somehow this did not show up in the training uh, in, environment, was not really discussed. And I think if we, if we kind of have situations that are aiming for this standardization, preventing problems from occurring, and not only, not also addressing how do you adapt to challenges two changes to different conditions on the way, then I think we, we kind of lose some of the potential. So in summary, what, what does that mean? To consider, you know, the, the mundane practice, try to look at what you already do with new eyes, try to excavate new ideas from the existing practice. One thing. 
The second to actually not only considering the extreme cases, but also the stuff in, in between what happens very often, because you will also apply that very often and very quickly after the training. And the third dimension, so to say, is considering the context with the installation. Human beings are interacting with the physical and the social environment. So an installation always has these three layers, the embodied abilities of the humans, um, the material layer, the, the stuff that they work with, and the social and organizational rules. And I think, again, by looking at this in, in the interplay, in its complexity, yes, it's lots of theories to try to get your head around and fingers and uh, gut feeling around. But I think that will actually help us to understand also better why or why not does our training work. I think that's a really nice example uh, with the BLS about how learning can be so situated and contextual. And so one of the roles of us facilitating learning is to help that transfer factor. Great stuff. Uh, and I also take your point, and the paper makes this very clearly, this is supplementing our approaches, not replacing. Uh, Mary, can I ask you the same questions? What are our take-home messages for our listeners here? Um, so very similar to Peter's, I think, many of us who've grown up with sort of uh, uh, improvement models and uh, lean uh, have been partially indoctrinated that variation is bad. But I think if we think about, rather than saying variation, we think about adaptation and how uh, individuals and teams actually adapt to provide normal or, or good care for patients. And again, I'm thinking many of the times that occurs without uh, the participants actually thinking very deeply or reflecting on that, but yet so much learning can come from that, particularly when there's somebody who's experienced and has done this a number of different ways. Um, somebody who's less experienced or a team, another team may never have thought of approaching it that way. So understanding, um, approaching this as what is the goal and being goal oriented rather than um, feeling or, or, or in, believing that there has to be a rigid protocol that is followed, you know, step by step, but rather thinking about what are the goals and what are the various ways that the teams and the individuals can adapt to the, um, as Peter points out, the, whether it's material or whether it's the, the team itself, but the various contextual elements in order to achieve a good result. And again, it doesn't have to be an outstanding result, but the normal or good result. How do, how do the teams and individuals adapt to those various perturbations and how do we think about that? Um, so it's not that we're following uh, protocols or guidelines blindly, but we're actually thinking about how do we get to the goal? And I think that's an important uh, aspect of this is, is, you know, again, where it makes sense to minimize uh, variation, we should, but I don't think we should squelch um, the the adaptive piece because that actually is is critically important in terms of how we get the work done. Yeah, great stuff. Thank you. So for our simulcast listeners, as I said, I think this will change our practice at least a bit and a new way of thinking that we have to think about how that applies in our context to our scenarios and to our debriefings. So just that paper again, Variation and Adaptation, Learning from Success in Patient Safety-Oriented Simulation Training, and that's in Advances in Simulation, and that's part of our collaboration with that online journal. Obviously, it's free, open access, so uh, there's no excuse for it. I know listeners often uh, hear our podcast in the hope that it's all wrapped up in there. I'm going to shock you this time and say, actually, you should read this paper. And the reason I say that is because it gives a wonderful distillation of 
how we should think about patient safety into the future, as well as thinking about how we apply it. So just in this case, I'm going to recommend you actually go back to the paper, as well as some of the references that we're going to apply. And on a personal note, I'm just so happy we've got this advances collaboration going with Simulcast, because I get to talk to lovely people like Peter and Mary, and get to really extend my thinking about simulation practice. So can I just thank you both for your time today? And we'll look forward to uh, more in the series. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to Simulcast.